All right, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 4. And we'll be looking at verses 30 to 34 this morning. And let me read it. Mark chapter 4, verse 30 to 34. And he said, How shall we picture the kingdom of God? Or by what parable shall we present it? It is like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the soil, though it is smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil, yet when it is sown... It grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. With many such parables, he was speaking the word to them so far as they were able to hear it. And he did not speak to them without a parable, But he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. Let's pray. Lord, thank you this morning again for allowing us to be in the Word of God, to have the Word of God, to listen to it. Give us ears to hear, to be able to properly handle the Word of God, but Lord, just the practical application of it, that we may know the truth of the Word of God, that we may know the meaning of it, that we may know what we should be doing as believers. Help us to now understand it and do it, and I pray that it would be done to the glory of your name. In Christ I pray, amen. So again, remember, Jesus is by the sea, excuse me, the Lake of Galilee, even though it's called the sea, all right, where as he is there, they said that in this area, this is where the Sermon on the Mount was being given to. So when he gives these parables, it's when the fields give promise of a harvest to be gathered in in due time. That Jesus began to speak in parables concerning the secrets of the kingdom of God, something that is kept secret for a long time, and then unveiled by the Lord. And that's what's going on here. And so he is teaching them, remember, in parables, a, cons- a comparison, an analogy, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And so far, we have looked at the parable of the sower, or better, better the soils. Secondly, the parable of the lamp. Third, the parable of the growing seed, and usually the growing seed and the parable of the mustard seed kind of go together as one parable. Uh, And each of these parables, remember, is showing that the kingdom of God will grow by the power of God until it takes every true disciple from every people group in every nation. So, we're looking this morning at the parable of, of the mustard seed or the tiny mustard seed 
And remember, the mystery phase of the kingdom of God has some progressive things to it. It has some hidden things to it. And it has some dynamic facets to it. And it has some very strange things to it. All right? So this morning, there are actually two things that are we're looking at with several subpoints. The first is that God's kingdom program will experience extensive yet hidden growth. And that's what we read here in this portion of Scripture. So let me move on to some of the details of this passage, of this parable. The first thing is this, the smallness of the seed. If you look at verse number 31, it says, And it is like a mustard seed which when sown upon the soil, though it is smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil. So the mustard seed was the smallest of garden seeds used in, of course, first, the first century by the first century Jewish farmer. The mustard seed was often referred to in the Jewish Mishnah as an illustration of something quite little, quite tiny. In fact, uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 17, Jesus uses the mustard seed in a proverbial way, where he says to them, because of the littleness of your faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move and nothing will be impossible to you. So in that proverbial sense, Jesus is still using it like that. This is, of course, remember, not a conclusive botanical statement on the smallest seed in the world. But it was the smallest seed at that particular time where the farmers would use the seed and sometimes would grow wild. So the focus is the smallness and insignificant beginnings of the mustard seed. Now, how can something so small produce anything grand? Several different influential groups have already made a decision about Jesus' ministry and the perception that he may be the Messiah. Remember, his family members... uh, have concluded that he had overstepped his boundaries and have, has really taken leave of his senses and is out of his mind and needs some time of R&R and maybe some therapeutic counseling. And that's what it says in, of course, chapter 3, verse 21. It says, when his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, to seize him, for they were saying he has lost his senses. A second uh, group of people were, were the religious leaders, and they just concluded Jesus was also insane, and he was possessed by an evil spirit. And then, of course, all the others had come uh, to get close enough to Jesus to touch him so they can be healed, or maybe as we go on in the gospel to have uh, Jesus perform a miracle and feed everybody. So they were there for the food. And it becomes very apparent that the crowd thought that Jesus was mad, most of them. 
or that he was just a man. And they were starting to conclude that his ministry was really insignificant. They were not seeing anything really great about it. Because remember, the concept and the mindset of the day was the kingdom was going to come with all his fullness and power. And here's Jesus, just a man, teaching these things. And the people seeing his healing, yes, part it should be showing the kingdom of God is coming, but seeing those things, but now it's been some time that they've been around him and they're not really uh, getting thrilled too much about what he's doing. And so they're concluding that what he's doing is insignificant. And for sure, not many people wanted to be part of anything insignificant. They wanted to be part of something great. They wanted to be part of something big. Everybody does. But it's at this very juncture that this parable makes a contrast between the insignificant mustard seed and the full-grown plant that it produces. So the second thing in the details is in verse number 32 of chapter 4, and that's the greatness of the plant. And it says there, yet it is sown... It grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants. So a very small seed grows into a sizable plant, one larger than all the plants of the garden in its mature state and becomes literally, um, as as actually Matthew brings out, it becomes a tree. It becomes that extensive. So Jesus draws an analogy between the mustard's bush microscopic beginnings and its large mature state. In other words, the smallest seed produces something completely out of proportion to itself. So like the mustard seed, remember he's talking about the kingdom of God, the kingdom would begin very small. But it would end in a grand, mature state. The many who had fallen into the group that thought it was insignificant would, of course, be be proven wrong in the days of its full appearance or its full maturity. So everyone wants to be part of something grand. Not many want to be part of humble beginnings. However, if they get the sense of what Jesus is saying, they would come to know that humble beginnings, humble ministry will finish with tremendous and great results. But they have to get it. They have to get the whole thing. Because if they don't, then they're going to conclude, like the people were concluding, insignificant. Uh, little, nothing spectacular, just maybe another teacher's come along. So see, the kingdom of God starts off small. At Christ's first first coming, matter of fact, at his first coming, you don't really see the power and the glory and the majesty that's going to be. But at his second coming, all the world 
will see the kingdom of God has grown to the point that it will see Christ's kingdom surpass all of the earth's kingdoms in its power, in its glory, and its, and its majesty. So again, one must have faith to believe that. One must have faith to live within that context. And there's a very important reason Jesus is teaching this this way to his disciples. Because remember, they're going to go out into the highways and byways and preach the gospel. But are they going to be received everywhere they go? No. They're going to be mocked and ridiculed and they're going to be stoned and they're going to be killed. So unless they have this future perspective in their mind, they will soon give up and conclude with the rest of the group that this is really insignificant and Christ's ministry is insignificant. But the next section that we'll look at in our text is, is really a section that supports this view. For look what it says in verse number 32, the last part of that verse. In other words, that this next, the third thing is that the birds roosting in the branches uh, just fills out the picture of the tiny seed growing into a tree where it says this in verse 32, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches. But then notice the result so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. Now, many interpretations have been given to this, but I'll not go into those right now. What I believe and what is saying here is that actually this is a common representation of kingdoms from the Old Testament. That a tree whose widespreading branches afforded lodgment to the birds of heaven was a familiar Old Testament figure for a mighty kingdom that provided shelter to the nations. So, Let's take our Bibles for a minute and ter- turn back to Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel, in the Old Testament, and then we'll look at Daniel, because Ezekiel, remember, speaking of the kingdom of Assyria, wrote something quite similar. It was something where the kingdom provided shelter to the other nations. And I want you to notice the language that it uses in Ezekiel 31 and verse number 6. Ezekiel 31 and verse number 6. It says, And all the birds of the heavens nested in its bows, and under its branches all the beasts of the field gave birth, and all great nations lived under its shade. In other words that the kingdom of Assyria was providing this shelter for other nations and this protection for other nations where they came and nested there. Now, nesting is really a picture of something not uh, something where a person is getting a benefit. They're, they're, they're getting uh, a protection. They're getting uh, something uh, where like a, a bird when they make their nest, they put their young in it and they protect that nest. 
And so that's what the picture is being given here. Also in the prophet Daniel, you don't need to turn to this one, but in Daniel chapter 4, verse 10, it says kind of the same thing in verse number 12. It says its foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant, and it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the sky dwelt in its branches, and all living creatures fed themselves from it. In other words, that again, the picture is that the nation, the kingdom of Babylon is supplying this nesting, this protection, uh, this uh, shelter for the other nations that are around them, and they come under that. Of course, that is something that is uh, a, a picture there. And so I believe that in the parables, that's exactly what he's doing. He is saying that when the nation, when the kingdom of God gets huge and it becomes visible, it's going to be a shelter to the nations of the world. And we see this in other passages of scriptures too, but... Uh, I have no time to go there. I'll pick them up later in this gospel. But there is one place I want you to turn in Ezekiel, and that's Ezekiel chapter 17, verse 23 and 24, because this passage is really a passage that illustrates the Messianic kingdom. And notice in these two verses, Ezekiel 17, verse 23, and verse 24, it says... On the high mountain of Israel, I shall plant it, that it may bring forth bows and bear fruit and become a stately cedar, and birds of every kind will nest under it. They will nest in the shade of its branches. And in verse 24, and all the trees, now the trees being referenced to the nations of the field will know that I am the Lord. So this is going to be a worldwide thing where people are going to come in and find shelter under the kingdom of God. So these verses picture a great kingdom as large as large as trees with birds flocking to its branches. The kingdoms start off of course this kingdom starts off Seemingly small and insignificant, but in the end it grows and it will be extensive. It will be a great kingdom. And the other kingdoms of the world will in the end benefit from its greatness. So the nesting of the birds in the branches is a symbol of the formation of imperial control over many peoples. The inclusion of many nations into the future kingdom of God. All peoples of the world are going to be there, and all nations will enter in and in actually enjoy it, enjoy it, find nesting in it. Another person added, the kingdom would grow from tiny beginnings to a great tree and would ultimately pro- provide shelter, protection, and benefit to the entire world. So, in other words, this is giving us, true disciples, an understanding of the mystery phase of the kingdom. And the mystery phase of the kingdom is going to have some evil aspects intermingled with it. It's going to have some opposition to it. For example, the hardness of men's hearts, as we saw in the parable of the soil. And then, of course, Satan planting his workers right along true wheat 
in the church age, so within the spiritual part of the kingdom, which is the church age, that his kingdom will start small but will spread in power and influence and become victorious. So pretty much that is the, the package that Jesus has given to those who are there uh, by the seed listening to him. And um, now what it's doing, Al, it's doing something else besides just explaining that the kingdom is going to become large. And it's going to provide shelter for other nations. And this is what he always does in the parables, which is an amazing thing, I believe. He narrows, he's narrowing down. In other words, the parables, remember, are, are almost a teaching that's going to divide people. It's going to put a separation between two groups of people. That's what it's always doing. It's separating people. And it's causing them, it's putting them in, in a position to make a decision. Do I want to be part of this, what I think, insignificant, tiny beginning, which I don't see going anywhere? Or am I going to understand that this tiny beginning, this humble beginning, is going to turn into something grand over here? And I want to be part of that. And it's going to take faith to be part of that. See, that's what the parable is doing. And so that's exactly what goes on. In verse number 33, notice what it says in Mark chapter 4, verse 33. Now, this is the 10th time that the Lord is talking about hearing. And look what he says. With many such parables, he was teaching the word to them so far as they were able to hear it. So even though... The people were there listening. And of course, Jesus being the good teacher is leaking out the information, not giving it to them all at once because he has other parables that he's going to take care of. So what makes a person an able listener? What makes a person able to hear? Well, so far, we saw that It's the person who has active listening. Active listening enlightens the mind. Active listening creates a desire to understand. Understand what? Understand the role of the kingdom of God to understand the nature of the kingdom of God, to understand that Christ and the word of God play what, it, what they play in the development of the kingdom of God. That remember, Jesus' ministry is about preaching. That's his main thing. He's teaching. It's not about his miracles. It's about his teaching. That's going to be the main thing. So look at what it says that Jesus is teaching and he did not speak to them without a parable. Now, so Jesus Christ, remember, must preach the kingdom for the purpose, for that purpose he came uh, into the world. Only the presentation of that kingdom must now be for a decision. It must be, it must separate two classes of people. Remember, There's going to be the insiders, right? And who are the insiders? 
Those are the ones who listen actively, and it leads them to a clearer understanding of the mysteries of the kingdom. But then there are the other class, and that's the outsiders. And the outsiders, of course, would now regard these mysteries as wholly unintelligible, unintelligible, hard to believe, and even now to be rejected by them. And the ground of this really lays in the respective positions that these two classes have towards the, the kingdom of God. So the mysteries, the mysterious manner in which they were presented in the parables, the mysteries of the kingdom are now set forth not just in initial instruction, but in final decision. You must make a choice about Christ. You must make a choice about the kingdom of God. All right, remember, if we go back in our our text to, to verse number 11, that we see that the outsiders fail to listen. It doesn't mean that they don't have ears. They just don't understand what they hear because they have concluded in their mind otherwise. Not everyone was given the understanding about the mysteries of the kingdom of God. And if you look at verse 11, it says, but those who are outside get everything in parables. Verse 12, and here is the prophetic nature of Jesus' teaching in verse 12 of chapter 4. So that while seeing they may see and not perceive, while hearing they may hear and not understand, otherwise they might return and be forgiven. So he, he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? So the outsiders who are not listening actively, who are coming to different conclusions, get no more explanation from Jesus. As long as they follow Jesus for the wrong reasons, as long as they remain in unbelief and resist the gospel, they will not receive any more Revelation. If they did, according to chapter four, verse number thirteen and four, all right, they would get they would get more. They would uh, they would be able to return and be forgiven. But that's not the case here. The persons who fail to listen will not be enlightened by the word of God, nor will they desire to understand the nature of the kingdom of God. So, active listening determines whether. A person is an outsider or they are insider. Whether, and if they are insider, we will know that they will desire fellowship with Jesus and they will desire also a fuller understanding of the kingdom of God. Now, just in our minds, remember the two groups that are outsiders, really there's one group, there's only two groups, insiders and outsiders, but the outsiders from chapter 3, verse 21 were Jesus' family, remember, who seemed to misunderstand him in the beginning. And so they concluded that uh, he needed some help because he was insane, as I mentioned already. But remember, outsiders can become insiders if they repent and believe the gospel, they don't have to stay in that position. But then, of course, there's a group of outsiders, like the religious leaders, who were critics 
who accused Jesus of being uh, a sorcerer in, in cahoots with Satan, they would be, of course, Jesus' opponents. And they are the ones who are not listening. They have concluded against Jesus. But, again, going back, the insiders are the ones who do what? In verse number 9, look at verse number 9 of chapter 4 of the Gospel of Mark. It says, and he was saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So some were given understanding from this spiritually rich agricultural story. Others were withheld from having understanding. And who are the ones who were given understanding? Well, it were the people in chapter 3 of the Gospel of Mark who were sitting at Jesus' feet. They were the ones who, as it says in chapter 3, verse 32, a crowd was sitting around him and they were saying to him, behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. And he finally said to them, well, hey, who are my mother and my brothers? And he says, and whoever does the will of God, he is my brother, my sister, and my mother. And those were the ones who were sitting, listening, wanting to understand what Jesus was saying about the kingdom of God because they were growing in faith. One theologian said these words were not a repudiation by Jesus of his mother and brothers. Instead, they were a profound teaching about union with Christ. Jesus declared to those who believed in him and do God's will, they have a relationship with him that is closer than blood relationships between parents, children, and siblings. So here's the point. If you want to be considered to be an insider. You have to be spiritually related to Jesus to have entrance into the kingdom of God and by doing the will of God. So how does such obedience begin? Well, it begins by believing in Jesus. Chapter 1 of Mark, repent of your sin. Believe in Jesus Christ. So by the preaching of the word of God, the scriptures reveal the status and the dignity and the significance of Jesus Christ. It is clear that Jesus is the central person and focus of God's person, God's program, excuse me, for salvation of men and women, of all people who would believe. So believing the gospel means to obey the message concerning our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Son of God. He is God's own and only way of salvation, that God sent Jesus to the cross, that God put all our sins on him and punished them in him. And so the people come to believe that truth, and because of that, they become the insiders. They become the ones who want to have more of what Jesus is saying. So, so either a person is going to be depending on their own righteousness to enter the kingdom of God, which they can't enter with, or they're going to have to depend on God's righteousness in which we can enter the kingdom of God and enter in with joy. So most think 
that entry into the kingdom of God is predicated on the prerequisite of human righteousness and obedience. However, the kingdom of God is not a matter of human effort. It's a matter of what God, believing what God has already accomplished and already done, and that's faith. No one can enter the kingdom of God without repentance, without fleeing from sin and putting trust in Christ alone. In essence, your response must be to repent and to believe. So, to be in the in crowd, you cannot waffle on these imperatives for entry into the kingdom of God. Once you enter, you will also be in the crowd that is sitting around Jesus, learning from him, worshiping him, growing in love for God and others, and following him with the understanding that his kingdom is going to start off insignificant and small, and you're in that time. And you know what? We're still in that time. We're still in the time. Oh, yes, the church has grown. The church has become huge, but the church has grown with many variables to it. And so, well, let's look at chapter 4 in verse number 34. Take notice what it says here. And he did not speak to them without a parable, notice, but he was explaining everything privately. To who? To his disciples. To who? The in crowd. To who? Those who have believed in Jesus Christ by repentance and faith. And what were they doing? They were learning from him. They were worshiping him. They were growing in love for God and others. That's what they were doing. They were sitting around him. And how privileged it is for you to be called in the passage his own disciples. Meaning that I own them. They are mine. I have bought them. They are part of my family. They are my family. And where I go, I will bring them with me. But right now, you can't come with me. He says to his disciples, you got to do the unfinished work of Christ. You have to stay here until I finish everything. So, see, are you a true Jesus? Are you a true disciple of Jesus? Would be the question to ask. Does the Father see you actively listening? Does the Father see you sitting at Jesus Christ desiring to understand and know more? Does the Father see you serving? Well, further explanation is only given to those in close communion and connection to Jesus Christ. So there is a special place for his disciples. There's a special place for the insiders who experience the kingdom of God. And not only that, could you imagine privately meeting with Jesus? Any questions you have, ask him, and he will give you the answer directly, not by parable, directly. Because he wanted his children to know exactly what he was doing in the world so that they would not be confused about his program, so that they not, would not give, lose hope concerning his program. 
even when faced with persecution, they would not throw in the towel. Why? Because they were given the understanding of what God was actually doing in the world concerning the kingdom of God. So now that true disciples know that they are living in the seed-sowing times where the kingdom of God is still obscure and still hidden since Jesus began the process 2,000 or so years ago and handed it off to his apostles to continue it, and they handed it off to their disciples that came after them, and they handed it off to the next generation right up to our present time. So, see, this parable is just as applicable to us as it was to them. Even though the church has grown quite large, it's not the church that takes over the world. It is the kingdom that does. So we are still part of the seed-sowing time, and that is during the obscure and hidden growth of the kingdom of God. Yes, the church has grown in size, but in with many peculiarities to it, like it says in Matthew, the wheat and the tares grow together until the end of harvest. So this is what true disciples know. They know these things so that they are to be servants, so they are to be patient, so they are to be faithful, so they are to be workers until the end. But not everybody concludes that because the temptation could be while we're living in the in-between time where the kingdom behind the scene is growing and the church is bringing people into it by the preaching of the gospel of repentance and faith, in the in-between time, there could be people who become bewildered and become impatient. And they conclude like the scoffers conclude in Second Peter chapter 3. You know what it was, right? The scoffers concluded that nothing's really changed. And this is what it says in Second Peter. It says, know this, first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of the kingdom? Where is it? We've been looking for it. We don't see anything. Where's the promise of the kingdom? And then it goes on to say, forever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Of course, they forgot about the flood in that passage of Scripture. And they didn't realize that the next time God brings judgment, it's going to be by fire. It's going to be where the Lord brings is a thief in which the heaven will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. That's what's coming. And remember, that's going to be part of the harvest because the harvest has the good part of it and has the judgment part of it, like I mentioned last week. So some may conclude, nothing's really changed. It's all the same. Some may search for something more stable. What that is, I don't know. It could be power. It could be wealth. It could be government. It could be false messiahs who have promises that Jesus didn't bring. Give people hope that he did not teach. 
So some, some, somebody's going to search for something more stable. But there's nothing more stable. A true disciple knows there's nothing more stable than in believing in Christ. There's nothing more stable than what he's establishing. He's telling us how he's doing it. So we don't have to be taken by surprise. Others will search out something more promising. Now you say, well, who's going to do that? Well, you remember John the Baptist when he was put in prison? John the Baptist, when he was put in prison, heard of the works of Christ, the Bible says, and he sent word to Christ's disciples, and he said to them, are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? Even John the Baptist, when he was incarcerated, alone, in a dungeon type of place, was asking the question, are you the Christ? And then how did Christ answer John the Baptist. This is how he answered him. Jesus said to them, go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who does not take offense at me. He just clears, he's clear, he's saying exactly what he was doing. What the gospels say, what we're learning right now, that's what the answer, the answer Jesus would give to us if we say, are you the one or is there another Messiah that we should look for? He would say the same thing. Well, look at the gospels. That's exactly what the gospels teach. Some will worry and fret. Some are good at worrying. They think worrying, worry is going to accomplish something. It accomplishes nothing except ruining your health, both spiritually and physically. And remember what the Gospel of Matthew says. For this reason I say to you, do not worry about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor to your body as to what you will put on is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. And then Jesus, of course, concludes, so do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own, does it not? Have we not learned that yet? Why drag your worry from yesterday into today and then bring it into the next day? When Jesus says, listen, all the things that Gentiles worry about, you know, where am I going to live? What am I going to wear? You know, can I pay my bills? I will provide to you if you're faithful. Put first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and I will add those things to your life. So you don't have to worry about them. You don't have to fret about them. I will do that. So you have to trust the Lord will. And others will invest their time, talents, and efforts for this life on the broad road. Where Jesus, where it says in the Gospel of Matthew, enter the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many, many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. And who are, who are the ones who find it? They're the ones who have ears to hear and listen actively 
to the message and respond to it as God cultivates that heart to receive the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ and people end up believing and being saved. So, in conclusion, what are the insiders beginning to understand with these three parables? Well, the parable of the sorrow, what are they understanding there? The only person who's able to enter the kingdom of God is the person who has ears to hear the true meaning. Their ears hear the message of the gospel of the kingdom and their heart receives the message of the gospel of the kingdom by repentance of their sin and trust and belief in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of those sins and eternal life. And then these continue to follow Christ throughout their life and bear fruit of genuine repentance and salvation throughout their life until the Lord takes them away. So the parable of the sower is a person who is receptive and receives the truth. The parable of the lamp is the person who doesn't hide the lamp under something, but puts it up on a pedestal so all can be illuminated. And of course, Jesus concluded that particular parable of the lamp with about hearing again. He said, good hearers receive and get more. Bad hearers reject and lose the little they once had. And then, of course, that parable would mean, listen, keep listening and keep receiving. And then the parable of the growing seed. Casting seed for growth is in the power of the word of God. The seed is the word of God. The seed will do all the work. You need to do is just cast it. Proclaim it. Get it out there. Get it to your neighbors, your friends, your families, anybody you can, your coworkers. Get it out there and let the word of God do its work. But get it out there. And the, and the word of the seed has a mystery growth through it that the, the word will produce growth. Remember, the, the person who cast the seed goes to sleep. They don't worry about the seed, and the seed grows in the ground, and it sprouts up. And, of course, what, it, what does it mean in that the, the parable of the grown seed? It has a definite harvest to it, that the word brings a sure harvest of souls who are born again into the kingdom, and it brings a harvest of judgment on those who are not born again. And then, of course, that means to be ready. Be ready. And then the parable of the mustard seed that the kingdom of heaven would grow from a tiny beginning to a great tree, kingdom, and would ultimately provide shelter, protection, and benefit to the entire world. So in that sense, to be faithful, to be patient, and to be serving. That's what we ought to do. So that is what real, true disciples understand, and that's how they live their life. They live their lives. So will persecution come in even our day? Yes, it may. May we someday lose our life, lose our job, lose something because of Christ? Yes, we may. All right, but in our mind, there's something happening behind the scenes, and there's something happening over here, and we are going to be part of a grand and glorious explosion of the kingdom of God where Christ will reign over the whole world, and we will be in his kingdom. 
See, that is the hope that we have. So from now until then, I don't know. If we're 2,000-some years into it, who knows how long the Lord's going to tarry? It seems like the world has gone absolutely berserk. Everywhere, worldwide, not just here, not just down here, worldwide, people are crazy. And going, and governments are doing wacky things. And it just seems like it's all being set up for the end times. And they may be right on our heels. So please don't give up. Don't throw in the towel. Continue to march. Continue to press on. Continue to grow in faith in Jesus Christ. Right? Because what Jesus says is true. All, everyone else is a liar, but he is true. All right? So that's what we ought to do. We ought to continue on, be faithful, be casting seed, be growing in our knowledge of Jesus Christ, and be waiting for, remember, waiting for, anticipating the coming of Christ. Right? He may come for us in death first, but even if he comes for us in death, we're coming back with him. Right? But if he comes and for some reason we're going to be alive and remain, like it says in Thessalonians, well, then we may never die. Physically or otherwise, we may just go with Jesus and be in his kingdom forever and ever. That would be a glorious thing. I don't know who those are. I hope I'm one of them. I don't know. But nonetheless, that we live in those days. We live in those days. And you know what? You have the inside scoop. So you have no excuse. Neither do I. Let's pray. Lord, thanks again for the tremendous, incredible awesome word of God. We, we praise you, Lord, for it. We, we thank you for um, these parables, how, how they were designed, what their purpose was, how they really do push people to make a decision. There's no straddling the fence. There's no... Um, they, they, they can't stay neutral for long. Uh, even the ones who were the outside group uh, like his family, we know from the Gospels that many of them came to know Christ as their Lord and Savior after the resurrection. And so, Lord, if someone's still here in the outside group, I pray you'd bring them in by repentance and faith that Jesus Christ is the only way to be uh, born again and to enter the kingdom of God. And I pray you would save them. For us who are saved, who know we're saved, who have been born again, Lord, don't allow us to lose hope. Don't allow us to be uh, captured by doubt. Don't allow us to be intrigued by some person that may come on the scene that seems to have the answer and uh, is, is skilled in their rhetoric. Don't let us get pulled away. Help us to stick to what the Word of God says and live our life accordingly. So, Lord, we would be all those things. We would be receptive Lord, we would be faithful, we would be ready, and we would be working and serving and patient until you conclude your program, that we would right to the end serve you and love you and learn more about what your plan is. Thank you, Lord, this morning for the word of God. Bless us and encourage us by it. In Christ's name I pray, amen. All right, let's stand, uh, not stand. Let's have our